following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. So I'm not going to preach a sermon, you'll be pleased to know. Uh, Not as such, anyway. I'm I'm very conscious, you know, we approach this topic of mental health, mental illness. I'm very conscious that I'm not an expert in this area. Uh, I'm a pastor, and so that means that part of my role is that I'm connecting one-on-one with people, uh, usually in the church, but sometimes beyond the church family, uh, people that have all kinds of struggles, whether it's relational struggles, financial struggles, health struggles, including people that struggle with mental illness. And as I'm connecting with people, I can offer pastoral support and relational support and personal support, and I can try and uh, channel the resources of the church towards people uh, and enfold them them into the the church community, provide spiritual guidance and help and prayer and scripture and all of these things. But a big part of what I'm doing when I'm connecting with people is looking for the ways that I can then connect people with specialists and professionals that can offer more help than I can and offer professional help as people need it. And so I'm often referring and pointing people in the direction of others. And the the great thing is that within our church community, we've got a number of people that work in the area of mental health. And so this morning, I'm going to have a conversation with two of them, two people that work uh, within this area and journey with people and offer uh, counseling and help to people that struggle with mental illness. So Brian McStay and Rob Waller are going to come and join me up here. Come on up, guys. We're going to take a perch on these uh, stools here and have a conversation. Now, one of these guys, most of you will know very well, and one of them you might not know quite so well. So let me do a couple of uh, introductions here. In fact, I'll let you introduce yourself. So Brian, uh, most of you will know, Brian's been around our church family for 500 years or so, I think, <laughs> since about the Reformation. And uh, he is, Brian, Brian's a counsellor, Christian counsellor. Uh, he's my counsellor. Uh, I've gone and seen Brian many times. In fact, Brian is one of the reasons I'm still in ministry, to be honest. At times I've felt like throwing it in, I've gone and talked to Brian. Uh, and uh, he has been a huge encouragement to me and, and continues to be in my ministry. Uh, and so Rob is a little bit newer to our church family, Rob and his wife Susanna and their children. Um, Rob's a Brit, his wife's a Scot, and they are part of our church community. So, same thing at the moment. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Touché. <laughs> And, so, and Rob's a psychiatrist. And so let's get you guys just perhaps telling us a bit about what you do. Brian, we know uh, you're a counsellor and you've been in, in our church community for a long time, but what do you do as you're meeting with clients? What's going on in your counselling room? What are you doing with people? How are you journeying with them? Well, Fanny Crosby, Fanny Crosby said in one of her hymns, Down in the human heart, crushed by the tempter, feelings lie buried that grace can restore. Touched by a loving hand, wakened by kindness, chords that are broken can vibrate once more. And I think in my field, for example, I work with relationships, and if they go wrong, they can be a precursor to depression. I teach that love is not a substitute for a process, it's the outcome of a process. I also know from my scripture that Romans 8.26, a very powerful verse, In the same way, the Holy Spirit helps us with our emotional hang-ups. The word help is in the Greek, sonantilambanian. It definitely does not mean take away. So what is the Holy Spirit doing? In my practice, I find it 
helping people to understand what God is doing, that we all have limitations. Oliver died just recently, and here in this church, he lived within his own limitations. And every one of us need to do this. I don't believe that the scripture which says we're more than conquerors works if you don't take the verse before it into practice. So my task is to help people to understand that there is a purpose, a divine purpose in our humanity that we are not immortal and that we have to live within that framework. Mm. Those are the sorts of things that I find I'm challenged with, Rube. Mm, good. Beverly often says, come upstairs and practice the great therapy. <laughs> <laughs> good on you, Bev. Rob, tell us a bit about what you do. Yes, so um, I work down at North Shore Hospital. Um, those of you who know Shakespeare Road, you've seen Carmel College, and there's a new building next to that, which is the acute inpatient unit for psychiatry that covers North Shore. So we deal with, thankfully, a fairly small number of people who have to come into hospital for a period, usually because they're acutely suicidal or acutely psychotic, and I'm one of two consultant psychiatrists who, who run that unit. Um, there's another unit across at, at Waitakere Hospital as well, so I'm, I'm a doctor by training. Um, my week is a mixture of, yes, some one-to-one -one work, but not sort of counselling in the, in the way that Brian would do over a long period of time. Usually it's meeting people, reviewing people, but more importantly working with a very skilled multidisciplinary team, things like Mental Health Act, legislation, some people need to be required to be in hospital for their own safety, um, also medication, things like that. And I think you were sort of touching on a thing there that, you know, that, that the church is a wonderful thing, but God also gave us doctors and hospitals in the same way that we wouldn't expect a church like this to run an intensive care unit and do heart transplants. Um, I hope we're not about to do that. You know, we do many good things here, but I'd be worried if in that back room over there there were heart transplants going on. Different kind of heart transplant we do. We'll come on to that later. But, but likewise, we probably shouldn't be doing acute psychiatric inpatient care. That requires a lot of money, a lot of skill, a lot of resources, and God has blessed and I, I would say ordained a commission that the health board to do that as, as part of his government. Mm. Mm. Okay, so let's, let's dive into this topic then. Um, let, start by defining some terms. So we talk about mental health, we talk about mental illness. What do we mean? What do we mean, Brian, when we say mental illness? What does that include? I think if you imagine that the sand on Takapuna Beach, there are as many neurons in your brain as there are grains of sand on Takapuna Beach. And every grain of sand, that's a neuron, has 500 legs. And at the end of every leg, there are 500 neurotransmitters. And so when we think one of those 500 legs releases something within the neurotransmitter that leaps across the synapse gap to the next neuron. Now, that's just a layman's description, but it helps us to understand the complexity of how this brain works. And we're indebted to mental science and medical science to understand that these things can be treatable. Uh, some patients come where the only help for their depression will be medical. The dopamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine actually is the rocket fuel that enables these things to jump across the gap. So it is an immensely complex computer God has given us. Mm. Um, and so what is mental illness? For some people, uh, from recent research, the last years, 2015, Silkus research shows that some people have a propensity 
in their genetic makeup to suffer from depression. And this is important for Christians because, look, people feel so guilty if they're depressed. Mm. I don't feel guilty for wearing my glasses. The mind is only just part of the body. Mm. And when it malfunctions, we get all upset. We get a big meeting today about mental illness. Mental illness. It's just illness. The body is a whole. And I got into real trouble doing postgraduate study in London when I was trying to argue the point of the Trinity. That Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are a trinity, and they meet my trinity, body, mind, and spirit, through the cross of Christ. And I think the whole of the trinity teaches that it's an attachment. It's a, it's a dance, if you like. And God wants us to get involved in that trinity dance, connection with people. Mm. Now, when that doesn't happen, then you have a precursor for problems. Mm. Uh, sometimes stress itself can lower the neurons and healing can restore them. And so there are many, many causes for people to go into a spiral of depression. Mm. So let's, let me just build on that a little mm. bit with you, Rob, because there, there is this view, I think, among some people from a Christian perspective, that if you've got a person who's a Christian and they've got the Holy Spirit, mm. they've been saved by God's grace, they're going to heaven when they die, how can they possibly struggle with something like depression, anxiety, whatever it may be, uh, is, that, is that compatible? Is there something wrong with their faith at that point? I, th I think it's a, it's, it's a moot point. It's, 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 it's the wrong question to ask. So I'd ask a different question, which is why is this church absolutely rammed today? Okay, now we've got, I don't usually sit up here, but I can tell you this church is fuller than normal today. And I like the I've, word normal. <laughs> I've, I've yet to do, I mean, I've done a, quite a few sort of mental health Sundays in different churches. I've, I've yet to do one where it's not rammed. And I guess there's, there's two conclusions to that. One is the church is deeply confused, messed up, etc., and is doing worse than society. Or actually, and I think this is the truth, this is a really good church. And there are people in this church who have real, genuine, living faith, probably deeper faith than me, who struggle with depression, psychosis, etc. So, so it, it is a truth that, that we do this. And um, it's, 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 you know, oh, you know, it, it shouldn't happen, or I'm not supposed to feel like this, or, you know, you were saying earlier it was a hidden kind of thing. I think, you know, the evidence of the what's before my eyes at the moment, mm. and you all look wonderful this morning, by the way, but there are many people here, because this is a massive topic. The history's been confusing, hasn't it? So if you go back a few hundred years, the church delivered healthcare, delivered all kinds of healthcare. You know, you go and see your local monastery or your local um, hermit and he'd put a poultice on your, your boil or your fracture, whatever. The health did all, the church did all kinds of healthcare. And then gradually doctors came along and started doing physical health care and you had the barber surgeons and you had the college of physicians and these kinds of things came along. And, but mental illness stayed within the church mm. for a bit longer. But actually, you know, as Brian was saying, what we've had for the last at least 100 years, you know, Freud, probably going back before Freud, people that describing schizophrenia in the, in the 1900s and thereabouts. We've had 100 years of brain science, of, of psychology, the disciplines of psychiatry and, and psychology being, being practiced. And I think the church has still got a really important role, but also so has medical and psychological mm. science. And we need to try and hold those two. I think, you know, if, if all you've got is a hammer, 
everything looks like a nail and you go around sort of sort of hitting it and actually you know we we should have more than be, be more than a one-trick pony we've got um, social support the work we do with um, reaching people on the streets on a Friday night we've got counseling and psychological support some people need to see their their GP or a psychiatrist and have medical support we've also got spiritual support from um, count, um, pastoral care or the words of the Bible mm. Because it's, it seems as though among Christians and churches, you could sort of end up going to a couple of extremes. Mm. There's the extreme of we don't talk about it. And we, maybe we don't know how to talk about it. And so it just gets ignored in, yep. e- in every sort of way. And then there's the other extreme where you just get into, into crazy stuff and everything's a demon that needs to be mm. cast mm. out. Mm. And we're, we're doing all of this stuff that just ends up, I think, putting more and more guilt on people that they're not freed from this. So somewhere between those extremes, there's got to be a healthy road for us to walk as a church and actually caring for people well. What does that look like? Well, I think it looks like Luke, the 24th chapter. There was a resurrection party going on in Jerusalem, and two of the disciples, Cleopas was one, they walked away. The Bible says they were downcast. The word is almost the same word for depression. Now, here's an interesting thing. I thought Jesus just said two words to Lazarus, and he came alive. I thought he touched blind Bartimaeus, and he can immediately see. He touched the lepers, and they were immediately healed. So what's happening here? Jesus doesn't jump in front of these two and say, look, it's me. Come and join the resurrection party. And that bothered me when I got saved. That was the part of the New Testament as an atheist I just couldn't accept. It didn't make sense. Then as I trained as a therapist, it did. Because if he'd jumped in front of them and said, look, it's me, they'd have felt even more ashamed that they hadn't believed because they were depressed. And depression robs us of hope and in many instances of faith itself. And so what did Jesus do? He walked alongside them. He heard their story of depression. What did he do? The Bible says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in the scriptures all the things concerning himself. Look, their faith was gone. Their hope was gone. And so he rebuilt it step by step. Mm. Now, that's cognitive behavior therapy. And when they got to the inn, they were feeling a bit better, and they asked Jesus to have the, uh, the blessing as the rabbi. And the Bible says that they suddenly recognized him. I like to think as he laid his hands out to break the bread, they saw the nail prints. And then they said he vanished out of their sight. And then they ran back to Jerusalem saying, didn't our heart burn within us while he opened to us the scriptures and talked to us? So uh, I think if you want a parallel for mental health, uh, try the fifth chapter of Matthew. That's the best book ever written on mental health, the Beatitudes. And the, 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 the ministry of Jesus, the compassionate, caring ministry. I was on radio years ago about divorce, and I was attacked by a pastor from the South Island because I was talking to Leighton Smith about divorce. And the pastor said, you liberal counselors are just teaching theological nonsense. So I said, young man, if you've got your Bible there, turn to John, the fourth chapter. I don't need to. I know my Bible. And when you guys practice counseling like Jesus did, you'll get somewhere. Well, I got a bit angry and said, young man, you don't know your Bible. Jesus was talking to a woman who had failed five times divorced and was in a de facto relationship at the time. And what did Jesus say to her? God is a spirit. 
And those who worship him, worship him in spirit and in truth. We have got a wonderful healing saviour. And we don't have to go just to the medical or just to the super spiritual. We need each other. We need never to deny miracles. And we need never to deny medical research. Mm, mm, Good. Let me just, I want to read a few scriptures Mm -hmm. and just have a conversation around a few verses. And I want to read out a couple of passages and have you guys just comment on what you think is going on here. So the first one is in Psalm 13. And this is is King David, one of the great kings of Israel, the greatest really (coughs) king of Israel. And he's writing a psalm, a psalm of lament, and he says this. How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? What do you think's happening there, Rob? I mean, the, the lovely thing about David is that he's just raw and real and, and gritty. And he's, so many of the Psalms are what we might perceive as, as, as negative. Um, tell you a slightly different story. Brian's not the only one with stories. I'll, I'll get a few in. Um, <laughs> this friend of mine went to Hillsong College in Sydney to go and do their sort of um, study year and their internship year. And he, he went there and came back, you know, full of the joys of spring. And, uh, you know, we were chatting about how great it was and what a wonderful time. And, you know, Hillsong is, is very much the sort of positive end of things. I'm actually really pleased they've been developing their, 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 their counselling and their pastoral mm. ministry a lot recently. But it, it is a very positive kind of church. And we were sort of joking. And he... He wasn't, he wasn't really this arrogant, but he was, he was sort of saying, come on, Rob, ask me a question about the Bible and I'll answer it. You know, I've, I've been and studied the Bible for a year. And I said to him, I said, um, tell me about the only psalm that hasn't got a happy ending. <laughs> and he says, oh, what do you mean? He said, I know David gets a bit down on his laurels, you know, in the middle of some of the psalms, a bit like that verse there. But he gets there in the end, doesn't he? You know, he has faith in God. He, 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 what, he pushes through and he's victorious in the end. And... And I said, well, you know, why don't you read Psalm 88? Because <laughs> Psalm 88 ends with the words, I am without hope, darkness is my only friend. Mm-hmm. And there's no resolution in Psalm 88. And actually, in quite a few of the other Psalms, there's not that much resolution either. When you read about David walking in the wilderness, having, having lost Jonathan, his best friend, had been, had been killed, and he, he, he's really without hope. And there's a number of other examples in the Bible. And, you know, would we call that depression? I, I don't know. They didn't have the word clinical depression back in those times. But it is unresolved grief. There is no need to sort of pucker up and smile for the camera. Mm-hmm. It, it's just there, and God is, is happy with it and does not pass critique or comment on it. This is part of the journey. You know, mm-hmm. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And the way is, you know, the journey is there as much as the destination. Mm-hmm. The, the, the truth is about the truth that, that, that God is a, a restorer. And mm-hmm. for some, that restoration will only come in, in heaven. And likewise, life, eternal life, has started mm. and it still contains sorrow yeah. and pain because it contains sorrow and pain for God. Yes. And we were, we were talking before about how even the fact that these kinds of verses are in the Bible is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the, the writers of Scripture, it's not just that David wrote these Psalms, but then those who were compiling these Psalms into the Bible saw fit to include these Scriptures. They had something to say to us. They have something to speak to us. They could have easily just sifted out the ones that were darker, that were more negative, that didn't have the happy ending. But the writers of Scripture, under the inspiration of the Spirit, saw this is part of human beings connecting with God, relating to God, even in the emptiness and the darkness of their experience. So that's got something to teach us. 
Let me, let me uh, put another one to you, Brian, and this one we hadn't planned, so I'm just going <laughs> to okay. throw this at you, all right? But I think of the story, I've, I've, it's been on my mind, the story of Elijah. <clears throat> and Elijah has this incredible experience with the prophets of Baal. He defeats the prophets of Baal, uh, calls down fire on the altar, uh, this amazing moment when God is victorious over Baal, and Elijah looks great in front of everybody. And then he takes off, and he flees to the wilderness, and it says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. Mm -hmm. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. What on earth is happening there? Well, first of all, Jezebel, this painted blonde bimbo of a queen, said to him, I'll get you for what you've just done to my priests. And poor old Elijah crashes. Now, in medical terms, the doctors here, I think he suffered from a depletion of adrenaline. He was on top of the mountain and his adrenal glands were pumping like nothing. And then suddenly it all stopped. And so he crashed. Um, I think when I first studied, we used to call the depression caused by traumatic experience, uh, we used to call it in study the Elijah syndrome. I, I studied in the 1950s, by the way. And so... Nowadays, we're not allowed to call it the Elijah syndrome because, no, we're not biblical people in the world now. We call it post-traumatic stress syndrome. If pastors are going to commit suicide, they usually do it on a Monday. That's statistically. Rock singers come down off the thousands of screaming people and crash because they come down off adrenaline. So watch out, musicians. <laughs> Something it, like that. It's, it's true, and I was just saying this to Rob this morning that in my own experience, the, the times that I feel the lowest are Mondays. You come off the high of Sundays and the buzz of Sunday morning, mm, and then you. I'll often feel I, I crash Sunday, mm. not just physically, but often emotionally, Monday's a hard day. And I think it, it sort of touches on the fact, isn't it, that sometimes, f for some people, suicide is a logical choice. Yes. And it, it's a logical choice because there are real pressures and hope has been lost, yes. if, if that's the right word. And, you know, it may be possible for someone else to stand back and say, look, there's all these things on the plus side of the scales and the things on the minus scales are not so bad. But for that person in that moment, yes. even the thought of the people they will leave behind, even the, um, the, 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 the Christian hope that they do know is, is not enough. Mm. And, you know, suicide, I think, is, is not weakness it is it is for some people a, a logical choice where they are at at that time and I think you know we're talking about support and encouragement and trying to support people I mean one of the things I do in in the unit I work is obviously we we support people through through that period yes. and try to keep them safe until until they are able mm. to to have a different kind of logic and there's many different approaches some spiritual medical biological etc but it, it is there are times you know um Paul in Philippians 1.21, whether he's talking about the same thing, I don't know. But, you know, for me to, to live is Christ and, and die is gain, you know. And at one level, that was I want to be in heaven. But it was also, you know, it's, it's hard being persecuted on earth for the, for the church. And his, his scales were, were, were swinging that way, I believe. And we shouldn't go around sort of saying, oh, you know, um, what are you with your sort of grumpy looks and, and all that sort of thing. And, look, you know, your life's not that bad. You're not being... Um, persecuted in, in, in Syria or, or, or something like that. Because for that person at that time, the darkness is, 
is logical. Very dark. Yes, yeah. And, but, and yet, how do you then reach out? How do you then help? Like, if you have someone in your life yeah. who you seriously believe is entertaining thoughts of suicide, and yes, on the one hand, you can, you can see, yes, there's, there's, a, there's a logic and you can understand yep. the reasons mm. and so on, but at the same time, you obviously don't want that logic to play itself out. So how do you respond? Definitely, and I think it's, you know, it's a very difficult question for me to answer as a professional, because when I've got my professional hat on, there's all manner of things I would do, which is that we'd require people to be in hospital for a while, maybe, or something like that. But... I think, you know, for your average person in the church, if that makes sense, or if you're involved in work with Christians Against, Christians Against Poverty and you work with people in, in debt who perhaps are, mm-hmm. are, are suicidal, what I would say is behave like a, a normal member of the public. You know, just because you've had a sort of 20-minute question and answer session on, on mental illness doesn't mean that you're an amateur, amateur psychotherapist. Um, <laughs> you know, so, so what you should do is... It, a lot of it really, I think, boils down to, to how worried are you. You know, if, if this is someone talking to you and sharing with you and saying, look, I just want to talk about some of the areas I've been struggling in. You know, what, what you shouldn't do is overreact. You know, the first thing to do is just listen and say, can I help you? Offer mm. practical support. You know, it's not about doing amateur psychotherapy. It's about saying, I'm going to the shops. Can I pick anything up for you? A bunch of us are going to the cinema. You know, do you want to come along? Um, just real practical kind of stuff. Mm. But likewise, if you think someone really is at risk and you're worried about them that day you need to say to them look i need you to come down the gp with me or you know Mm. we need to take a walk down to the emergency department and if they won't go phone the police Mm. you know i mean that has to be your response as a member of the public the police are there the first duty of the police is to preserve life Mm. before they control Mm. crime so um if you're worried about someone and you really think something is going to happen today do something about it. Don't try and be a clever psychotherapist, you know. And the, be- the best thing to do is to go to the GP because that's a slightly calmer situation. Um, you can maybe book an appointment and say, you know, could I come along with you? Let's try and do this in the next few days maybe. Um, but if, if you have to, go, go down ED or, or phone 111. I think, too, people don't understand the pain of depression. Uh, I've always believed that physical pain... Uh, gets to a certain plateau and doesn't get any worse. So you'll either pass out or you'll survive. Well, I suspect that psychological pain actually doesn't know a threshold. And that's why people in the middle of it, as it is getting worse and worse and worse, see death as a way out. A similar story, by the way, is Jonah in the fourth chapter when he went to Nineveh and the whole of Nineveh repented and Jonah couldn't cope. And so he has this real argument with God. It's worth reading how God is trying to say to him, Jonah, why are you so angry? Why are you so angry? God is trying to get to the root cause of what has caused Jonah to choose and want God to kill him. Mm. So I I think uh, there have been a few times in my life when I've hit rock bottom, and I don't like the memory um, because recently I had a nasty abscess on my liver, and I'm in hospital, And I'm feeling as ill as I've ever been in my life. And everything went there for a few hours. And that was royer for me. And then I felt someone holding my hand. And I jumped. And it was a Catholic chaplain whose work I supervise. And there was young Oliver sitting there beside me and just quietly said, Brian, would you like me to pray for you? Um, What a moment. And I guess that was the first glimpse I think I've had of the darkness of depression. When nothing you do or pray or think or learn is going to make it go away. Mm. 
Mm. That's personal. And so picking up on that, we've got a video we're going to watch, particularly on the subject of depression. And then I'll ask you guys maybe just to draw out some observations on what we, on what we see. It's called The Black Dog. Some of you might remember Brian preaching this sermon called The Black Dog a few years ago. This is the video based on the book. Let's watch this. I had a black dog. His name was Depression. Whenever the black dog made an appearance, I felt empty and life just seemed to slow down. He could surprise me with a visit for no reason or occasion. The black dog made me look and feel older than my years. When the rest of the world seemed to be enjoying life, I could only see it through the black dog. Activities that usually brought me pleasure suddenly ceased to. He liked to ruin my appetite. He chewed up my memory and my ability to concentrate. Doing anything Going anywhere with a black dog required superhuman strength. At social occasions, he'd sniff out what confidence I had and chase it away. My biggest fear was being found out. I worried that people would judge me. Because of the shame and stigma of the black dog, I was constantly worried that I'd be found out. So I invested vast amounts of energy into covering him up. Keeping up an emotional lie is exhausting. Black dog could make me think and say negative things. He could make me irritable and difficult to be around. He would take my love and bury my intimacy. He loved nothing more than to wake me up with highly repetitive and negative thinking. He also liked to remind me how exhausted I was going to be the next day. Having a black dog in your life isn't so much about feeling a bit down, sad or blue. At its worst, it's about being devoid of feeling altogether. As I got older, the black dog got bigger and he started hanging around all the time. I'd chase him off with whatever I thought might send him running. But more often than not, he'd come out on top. Going down became easier than getting up again. So I became rather good at self-medication, which never really helped. Eventually, I felt totally isolated from everything and everyone. The black dog had finally succeeded in hijacking my life. When you lose all joy in life, you can begin to question what the point of it is. Thankfully, this was the time that I sought professional help. This was my first step towards recovery and a major turning point in my life. I learned that it doesn't matter who you are, the black dog affects millions and millions of people. It is an equal opportunity mongrel. I also learned that there was no silver bullet or magic pill. Medication can help some, and others might need a different approach altogether. I also learned that being emotionally genuine and authentic to those who are close to you can be an absolute game changer. Most importantly, I learned not to be afraid of the black dog, and I taught him a few new tricks of my own. The more tired and stressed you are, the louder he barks, so it's important to learn how to quiet your mind. It's been clinically proven that regular exercise can be as effective for treating mild to moderate depression as antidepressants. So go for a walk or a run and leave the muck behind. Keep a mood journal. Getting your thoughts on paper can be cathartic and often insightful. Also keep track of the things that you have to be grateful for. The most important thing to remember is that no matter how bad it gets, if you take the right steps, talk to the right people, black dog days can and will pass. I wouldn't say that I'm grateful for the black dog, but he's been an incredible teacher. He forced me to reevaluate and simplify my life. 
I learnt that rather than running away from my problems, it's better to embrace them. The black dog may always be part of my life, but he'll never be the beast that he was. We have an understanding. I've learned through knowledge, patience, discipline and humour, the worst black dog can be made to heal. If you're in difficulty, never be afraid to ask for help. There is absolutely no shame in doing so. The only shame is missing out on life. So there's a lot we could pick up in that, but, but Rob, maybe just to get on the positive side of that, just talk a little bit about some, I mean, they mentioned a range of things that you can do that might, simple things, positive things, if people uh, have depression or wonder if they might have depression, aren't even sure exactly um, where, where they're at, what sorts of things can we do? Yeah, there's, there's different things work at, at different levels. So if we think about, you know, mild, moderate, severe depression, maybe, um, mild, mild to moderate, um, you know, we know that what works is the main thing would be cognitive behavioural therapy. Um, if there's issues of life involved, like debt, relationships, etc., counselling is helpful. But if, if, if things do seem to be in order, if that makes sense, and still depression, cognitive behavioural therapy is what you should be looking for at the more severe end of depression, perhaps where you're, you're, you're losing weight, you, you, you cannot sleep, that sort of thing. You're probably more into, mm. into, into medication mm. territory. Um, a good place to start is, is your GP. They should know about resources from the health board. They should know about um, local, local counsellors. And obviously, you know, mental health, psychology and counselling can work alongside Christian counselling, pastoral support as mm. well. So there are a number of things. And then I guess the other thing is perhaps sort of, you know, we've spoken a little bit about immediate intense situations where the depression is, is, is very dark and the risk is high. But I like at the end of that film the way it touched on to some of the sort of chronicity of depression and that, mm. you know, you're beginning to teach depression some, mm. some tricks. And one of the great privileges I have is, is seeing people who've journeyed with mental health problems for, for many years. And actually, as I say, you know, these are people who've struggled with dark thoughts every day and they, they have a deeper, richer faith than I do in many ways. And I, I think if we really understand this area, it, it improves our theology. And um, what I mean by that is we were talking when we first met about, about guilt, for example, mm. and we feel guilty so much of the time. And it, it, it can be like walking through treacle. It can be vague. It can be like a cloud. It can be like a black dog. But actually, it, it forces us to, to focus our theology and say, is this true guilt for which guilt? I need mm. to repent from it? pushes me towards Jesus, it brings me that glorious forgiveness, or is this false guilt, which actually is speaking from another source? And I shouldn't take mm. that to God, because God says, I've already forgiven your true mm. guilt. Actually, what I need is different help with, mm. with false mm. guilt. And, you know, how do we repent when we're depressed mm. for the things we need to repent from, but handle the false guilt in a different mm. way? I think, you know, it really makes us think about it. And this, this strength that comes from chronic struggles leads to so much creativity. Mm. You know, you probably sort of heard about comedians and, you know, people who are wonderfully creative, um, who struggle with deeply with depression. And, you know, just one, one story, a guy called William Cowper, who wrote a lot of the big old hymns along with, mm. along with John Newton, lived with John Newton when he was writing Amazing Grace. William Cowper probably wrote Amazing Grace and said, John, that's a good one, I'll give you that one, because <laughs> he really wrote all the best ones. And one of the ones he wrote was, um, was God Moves in Mysterious Ways. Oh, we should sing, sing more hymns. Where's, oh, well, here we go. Sing more hymns, there <laughs> we are. Um, but, you know, he, just before he wrote the hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways, he tried to drown himself in the river a few hours beforehand. 
and something stopped him. And he walked back to the, the cottage and penned God Moves in Mysterious Ways, His Wonders to Perform. Mm. And right at the end of, of the hymn, he's sort of saying, you know, it's tempting, isn't it, to sort of think, well, where was God? Why didn't God stop me? Before I got in the river, I could not have got wet. You know, would, where we can ask all these questions about God. And the, the last two lines of the hymn are, God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. And, you know, ultimately, God is good and God is wise, mm. and we have to trust he's mm. too good to be awful to us. Mm. He's too wise to make a mistake. The, I think depression, mental illness, any kind of chronic illness, chronic struggles, push us into mm. these places, mm. and we'll learn more about God, I would believe, than if we sail through life with not so much as a, as a ruffle. Mm. Um, mm. We, we can have a, it enriches our faith. Mm. These things are here for a reason. Yes, and so let me just ask you then this final question, and we'll have to wrap it up because mm. of time, but just to build on what you're saying, a, a lot of people, I think, who struggle with mental illness have that profound sense that God has abandoned them. Yes, they have. They just, even if they know rationally that he's there and they've got a faith and they've repented perhaps of sin in their life and so on, there's just still that feeling that God's left me, he's abandoned me, he's, I'm completely alienated. They, they just don't have that sense of his presence. What can we say to people who are in that place? Well, I had a lady from Thames who was sent to me by her doctor because she was suicidal. And I won't go into her life story, but it was a series of unbelievable tragedies. Unbelievable. And I hid my car keys behind my satchel on the floor. And I said to her, now, can you see what's behind my satchel? And she said, no, I haven't come from Thames to play silly psychological games. So I lifted my satchel and she said, yes, of course, I can see it's your car keys. So I said, my dear, if you can see, what do you need faith for? And I think when we walk into per terminal illness, overwhelming depression, financial collapse, marriage breakdown, my word, we, we, we have to relearn what faith is because faith is not seeing. Mm -hmm. My scripture says faith is the evidence of what I don't see. And that's a hard lesson to learn. This year, the World Health Organization has listed depression as the major disability in the world today. And statistically, we think it's possibly between one in four and one in seven people in the world will suffer depression. Now, I'm going to be naughty, but that means everybody sitting in that group over there will have some degree of form of depression if the statistics are right. I knew it was that lot. Over there. <laughs> <laughs> and it, God, God is very distant, isn't he? I think. I mean, many people will know the, the the footprints poem, where you know you're walking along and there's there's two footprints in the sand, and then suddenly the the, the second set of footprints disappear for a while, and we we think God has abandoned us, mm. but the, the the poem goes on actually to to show us that those footprints are God, and He was mm. carrying us. Um, there's an extension to that poem which says. Um, you know, that single set of footprints, that's where I carried you. That groove, that was where I dragged you. <laughs> that hole over there was where I stashed you while I got myself a hot dog. And, and I think, you know, it, when we're on a journey with God, it, it can seem as though he's dragging us, or it can seem as though, to be honest, God has dumped us and gone off to get a hot dog or mm. do something more fun for a while before he maybe comes back mm. to us. But we, we've got to hold on to that in faith. And, of course, you know, this is, I guess, you know, where we'll, we'll, we'll sort of close this and talk about how can the, how can the church help? Because the church is the arms and the eyes and the ears and the, the hugs and, 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 and that sort of thing of, of God. So, um, you know, Abraham hoped 
against hope, it said, when he was thinking about a child in his old age. You know, logically, there was no hope, but there was different hope that he was placing it in. But sometimes we need that people to hold that hope for us, and we can walk alongside people, and we can say, look, I know... I haven't got any help, hope at the moment, but thank you for, for holding that hope with me. And I think holding hope for people, practical support, inviting people to the cinema. Let's not go for a coffee, too much talking involved. Let's go to the cinema. Let's go for a, 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 a walk with a whole bunch of kids that scream so you can't talk, you know. Let, let's just do, do stuff that's easy alongside each other is, is really important. And if we can get that bit right, that, that's a big part of the jigsaw. Mm -hmm. I found uh, reading Viktor Frankl as a young therapist where he teaches about hope. And I've got a letter at home translated from the Dutch by Etty Hillensum, who was 12. And she was one of the few survivors of Auschwitz. She'd lost her family. They'd all been butchered. And she writes, Sometimes I'm in this prison and I find tears of deep emotion flowing down my face. Tears of sadness and yet strangely tears of gratitude. You see, I want to be right here in the middle of what people would call absolute human horror and still be able to say my life is beautiful. Mm. A little Jewish girl's concept of the darkness. Mm. And I've always been, whenever I read that in my office, I'm just moved to tears. Mm. And I think there are times when the darkness is massive, but, but God is there. Mm. Lovely. We're going to have to leave it there, guys. But, Rob, can you just br very briefly wrap it up by talking about the Mind and Soul website? Yeah. Um, there's a huge resource that Rob is involved in. And if you remember when I sent out an email after Danielle passing away, there were a number of links and articles that we distributed to the church. That came from this website that Rob's been involved in putting yeah. together. So just talk us through that briefly as we end. Yeah, so, you know, at one level, a, a day like today is always going to raise more questions than it's going to offer answers. And, you know, how, how can we hope to scratch the surface in a 20-minute in, in a Q&A? So Minus Our website is, is something that myself and, and a few friends been working on for about 10 years, and we've just chucked a whole bunch of stuff up there um, just to sort of say... You know, here's about 500 articles on Christianity and mental health. I think there's a video, Rob, to come. So, um, you know, it's about 500 articles up there, about a whole bunch of different resources. There's over 100 audios. We've been running conferences like the upcoming Willow Creek one for about 10 years now, and we've just taken all the audios from any seminar on pretty much anything you'd want about Christianity and mental health and bunged it up there free of charge. We've got about 150 testimonies, all kinds of different stages in the story. Mm. And we've got about 100 book reviews on virtually every different topic. So that resource is, is there. Please go dig in. Be warned, it's massive, so use the search engine and dig in. Um, we're also going to email around um, later on this week something else I've been working on, which is called the Mental Health Access Pack, which is kind of a sort of microsite, just 20 pages dealing with some of the sort of big things. So we're going to email around a, a, a PDF of the depression page, which hopefully is more sort of bite-sized. Um, and then we're going to be running a, a, a sort of follow-on session mm. on, a, on a Sunday evening in a couple of weeks' time. But, you know, I hate de-raising all these questions and not having a resource for you to go with. So please, please do go and have a look at that. And also on, on the side, we've got um, some postcards just about the mental health access pack over there. If you can't mm. wait to the email, please go and pick up a postcard from the information desk. Yeah, good. It is a fantastic website, so go and check that out. There's, and you, there's a good search function there. Yep. You can search by topic and uh, very, very good resource. Thank you, guys, for your wisdom, for sharing that, for your honesty. We appreciate it. Can we show our appreciation to Rob and Brian? This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. 
For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.